Let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Lord, we thank you for the great privilege of being able to hear your revealed word, to be able to read it, Lord, to be able to study it, to be able to to do that in a repeated fashion, Lord, so that we can absorb what you have declared to us when you breathe out your word. So, Lord, may we not take our time this morning lightly, but may we come to you humbly, um, desiring for you to teach us. So, Lord, what we are not, would you make us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? And, Lord, we ask that you would allow me as your messenger to simply proclaim your truth, that you would be free uh, to, to have your way with us this morning. We ask in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, God, my friends, has gotten Israel out of Egypt. But now he gives the first commandment. He's looking once again to get Egypt out of Israel. And friends, this is a picture of the Christian life. We're all slaves to sin. And God swoops down and graciously delivers us through what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And as a result, we who have believed in him are truly free. But the reality is, we drag a lot of our past life into our new life with Christ. You know that to be true. There's lots of habits and patterns of thinking that you and I bring into our Christian life. And that's what was happening here with Israel. And what what God is seeking to do with them is to wash them with the water of the word. He's giving them these commandments to help them see the, the sinfulness, the things that, he is, that they have brought into their new life with him. And that's why ultimately we can say that we are saved sinners still struggling with ongoing sin until we enter into the place of rest. And of course, that's heaven, the very presence of God. Our sin is paid for. We know that to be true. That is our confidence, but it is still present with us. Now, what God is doing here with Israel is to give them 10 central commands that will change the way that they think about life. How they'll worship him, how they will relate to others, loving him, loving others. These commands will also help Israel to root out the sinful attitudes and habits that they have brought into their new lives with him. So now we come to this first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And this morning I would like to present to you that God's people must commit to worship God and God alone. This is what we are called to do. This is what he desires from us, that we would worship him and him alone. And friends, this commandment is is extremely important because it precedes and is the foundation for the other nine commands. In other words, if you get this one right, the others will follow correctly. And, or we could say, but... If you disobey one of the nine commandments, you will find that the root of your decision-making is the violating of this first commandment. So the real issue this morning is this. Who or what is it that we are worshiping? Who or what is the object of our worship? The question isn't, are we worshiping? Because everyone is worshiping someone or something. The question is, who or what are you worshiping? Who or what am I worshiping? And when I say worship this morning, I'm not so much thinking about our corporate gatherings, although certainly there is an application there. We're talking about the personal worship of your life, the orientation of your heart. Whom or what are you worshiping? today. So this morning, I want to begin by saying what we have from this text is a call to forsake idolatry, a call to forsake idolatry. You shall have no 
other gods. And notice that it's, it's written there in the little g. No other gods. There's three questions that we need to ask and answer as we consider the subject of forsaking idolatry. For some, this whole idea of idolatry seems rather antiquated, doesn't it? It's simple-minded. It's something that only backward people would actually uh, do, kind of in strange pagan societies. But friends, what Scripture reveals to us is that idolatry is real, it is central, and it's pervasive. So the question we have to ask as we begin here is this. Question number one, who is guilty of idolatry? Who is guilty of idolatry? And it would only be right if we answered that question in light of the context of the book of Exodus, the context in which this commandment is given. So as we look around the book of Exodus, what do we find? Well, first of all, we find the nations, the nations. That's worth us making sure that we understand the difference between polytheism, which is the worship of many gods, and monotheism, which is the worship of one god. And as we think of the nations, of course, the nation that we think of, first of all, is the nation of Egypt. And the account of Israel's enslavement and deliverance Um, reveals the polytheism of Egypt's religion. If you recall, all of the plagues that the Lord did, he did not only to confront Pharaoh's hardened heart, but also to reveal the emptiness, the impotence of Egypt's gods. They were all directly related, pointed to particular gods of Egypt. In fact, we find that in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 12. Listen to what it says. For I will pass through the land... And uh, of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. See, clearly there he's saying, the reason I'm doing this is I am casting judgment on Egypt's gods. And so, friends, we find Egypt as the source, or one of the sources then, of idolatry. But then, of course, we find out that the rest of the nations around also uh, were embracing idolatry. Now, the nations surrounding Egypt may actually have have been polytheistic in a little different way. They may have thought of themselves as monotheistic. In other words, that they worshiped one god. Maybe it's Dagon, or maybe it's Baal, or or maybe it's, it's Molech. But they, in their typical thinking, saw those gods as national gods. In other words, there's the gods or the god of the Amorites or the god of the Canaanites. So they they may have had one dominant god, so to speak, that represented their people. But they were also, in their minds, then territorial gods. So although they may have been monotheistic kind of in their national identity, they recognized that there were other gods out there of other nations. And when they came to battle or when there was conflict, whoever won, they would attribute that to the God of that particular nation. So ultimately, even in their monotheism, guess what? They're polytheistic, all right? They realize and they recognize these many gods. So it's helpful then to understand that in all of that, they are practicing and they're guilty of idolatry. So first of all, it's the nations. Secondly, it's Israel. Yes, Israel throughout its history consistently struggled with idolatry. You might want to turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 24. Joshua 24. And in Joshua 24, we find um, we find Joshua speaking, but this is after they have entered into the promised land and settled over most of it. Um, this is what we find is being written. Let me just pause here a second and say, Alex, I don't think the PowerPoint's working that well, so I'm just going to, if you want to work it, that's fine, but I can't do it here. Okay, here's what it says. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods of your fathers. Serve beyond the rivers and in Egypt and serve the Lord. So he's speaking to Israel here, and what is he saying? He's telling them to put away the gods of your fathers or that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt. Well, 
this is Israel already in the promised land now, already conquered most of the promised land, and guess what? They still have the gods of Egypt with them. They still have the gods from the surrounding nations. In other words, they had brought into their new relationship with God these gods of Egypt. Now, whether they brought them in their minds and then they fashioned gods after the gods that they knew in Egypt, or they physically brought them with them, I don't know. But they certainly were conforming now to these gods. This is what happens when you live in a particular context. You tend to rub shoulders with people in that context, and you tend to embrace some of the ideas and thinking and even the gods of that particular context. You conform to them. So clearly what we can see from this text is that Israel had embraced the gods of Egypt, even the other nations. And here they are now in the wilderness, way before this, standing before the mountain of God, and we must see them now as a people who have with them whether physically or in their hearts, the various gods of Egypt. And God now is speaking speaking to them. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. He's not just saying this out there so one day when they encounter a god, oh, I can't have that god before you. Because they were already there in their presence. They were with them, so to speak, right? So there was this wavering between the gods of Egypt and the nations, and the newly revealed I am of Israel. And so Joshua here is seeking to shake Israel free of the entanglements of these foreign gods. Now turn to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel and chapter 20. You might want to read through verses 1 through 8. I don't know that we're going to do that this morning. But this takes place 800 years after this commandment is given by God. And in this context, Israel is anticipating being carried away into captivity because they are under judgment, in particular due to their consistent ideology and rebellion against God. God had repeatedly come to them and warned them over and over again, you continue down this path, judgment is coming. And I'm going to pick this up now at verse 3 of Ezekiel 20. Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Is it to inquire of me that you come? It's like, all right, now that that Babylonians are coming to take you away, now you want to talk to me, right? Now you want to come before me and ask for help. As I live, declares the Lord, I will not be inquired by you. Ouch. How would you like to be in that situation? Will you judge them, son of man? Will you judge them? Let me know the abominations of their fathers and say to them, thus says the Lord God, on the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, that's Israel, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt. I swore to them saying, I am the Lord your God. Does this sound familiar? On that day, I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. And I said to them, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourself with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Does that sound familiar? Absolutely. This is what he's saying. But This is verse 8. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Now, friends, so 800 years of disobedience, and it's because of idolatry. Going after other gods was the heart of the issue, and it's fleshed out in the people ignoring God's requirements not to intermarry with the surrounding nations and not to worship those foreign gods. And what is evident from this text, from Exodus 20 to Ezekiel, is the consistent issue facing Israel was their idolatry. And, of course, they're overrun by the Babylonians. They're taken away into captivity. We find, however, 70 years later, under God's providence, he moves the heart of a pagan king by the name of Cyrus and allows 
Israel to return to Jerusalem, some of Israel to return to Jerusalem. And so they return, and under Ezra's leadership, they begin to uh, restore the temple, and the word of God is, is beginning to take place uh, once again there in Jerusalem. And they begin to establish themselves as God's people in God's place under God's rule, which ultimately is the picture of Israel in a right relationship with God. But they're not long back in Jerusalem before they ignore the first commandment and begin to intermarry with the surrounding nations, which is evidence of abandoning the one true God in rebellion and joining themselves with other gods. And so we read in Ezra chapter 9, in verses 1 and 2, the following. And just capture this now. And by the way, Ezra and Nehemiah are the last historical record in the Old Testament. Okay, This is where the narrative ends in the Old Testament. Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. Abominations would be a reference to not only behavior, but also the gods. Verse 2, for they have taken some of their daughters uh, to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the people of the lands. Remember what God said to Israel? You are my prized possession. You are a, what, priest, kingdom of priests. You are a holy nation. And here they're violating that relationship in that Mosaic covenant. And here's the, here's the punchline. And in this faithfulness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. And the point here is this. This is not just happening on the fringes of Israel. This is at the very heart of the leadership where this is taking place in Israel. Now, I go through all that, friends, to say this. Israel struggled with idolatry. <laughs> it was central to their struggle. So we have the nations are guilty of idolatry. Israel's guilty of idolatry. And, and the third thing here is the church then is guilty of idolatry. Yes, you heard me correctly, the church. The reality is, friends, we're all guilty of idolatry. We're all idol worshipers. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, Pastor Rod, I think that you might be losing it. Maybe you've been standing out in the sun too long already, and you're just not making any sense at all. I certainly don't go home to a shrine I've built in my backyard and offer incense or lay down fruit before a statue. I'm not guilty of dancing around some kind of totem pole, you know, offering incantations. I'm not bowing down to or praying before any carved image or pagan deity. That's the kind of stuff you'll find in simple-minded cultures. I've been a Christian all my life, and I can assure you that I am not practicing idolatry. But friends, that is exactly what we are. We are quick to say, God, you know that I love you. You are so very important to me. I want to be a good Christian. I want to worship you, invest in the church, and teach my children about the things of God. But I also have this other God that I love, and it's going to, to join us, and, and you should be okay with that. See, God, I love you, but I love this too. My friends, that's what we call syncretism. Willfully combining that which is in opposition to God with God and somehow calling it good. And we can be eager to say we're on the Lord's side while at the same time feel no hesitation to say we are on the world's side. You see, we want God with all the blessings and assurances that he gives but we also want the world with the securities and comforts it brings, at least in our perception. This is what Scripture calls spiritual adultery. And friends, the image of marriage is 
the analogy of idolatry, isn't it? Imagine a man coming home from work to his wife of 10 years and introducing to her his newly embraced mistress and saying, look, honey, we're all going to get along really well. I love you and I love her and I want us all to be one big happy family. Somehow I don't think she will think it's a good idea. Why? Because you are violating a covenant relationship. And that's what idolatry does. And friends, as horrible as that sounds, that is exactly what happens when we choose to have gods beside the one true God. The expression here, before me, isn't saying alongside me. It it literally means in my presence. So get the picture. God is in the mountain. He is now speaking to the Israelites at the bottom of the mountain. He is speaking face to face with them, and he's saying, I am the Lord your God. You shall not have any gods before me. And you can imagine them kind of like, you know, if they got one in their pocket, kind of putting them behind their back. And, you know, the the very presence of God. He will not share his glory with anyone else. Scripture uses very strong language for this kind of behavior. It's called adultery. It's called whoring. It's called unfaithfulness. God will not tolerate spiritual adultery. He will not put up with sharing his space with other gods. In contemporary terms, and I don't mean to make this light, but just to make a point, when God takes a selfie, he doesn't tolerate anyone photobombing. Get that? He deserves the glory himself. So friends, well, the question, question number two. Question number one was, who's guilty? Question number two then is, what is idolatry? We haven't spent much time there, just assumed it. Let me give you a definition of idolatry. An idol is anything, often a good thing, that we deify by making it an ultimate thing in our lives. Right? An idol is anything, often a good thing, that we deify, we make it like God by making it an ultimate thing in our lives. So these are things like family, children, spouses, homes, jobs, sports teams, and on and on. All things that the Lord has blessed us with, things that are good things but have become ultimate things in our lives. They become deities, so to speak, in our lives. You might say, well, I'm not worshiping them in that sense. No, but they are idols in your life. The question is, are idols real things? And I think there's two ways to answer this. Answer number one, on one hand, we can say, yes, they're real things. Why? Inasmuch as they really do influence and drive our lives, they're real. On the other hand, we can say no, in the sense that they're not true deities, and they should never take that place. So someone bows down to an idol that they've created, that they've manipulated, they've built, whatever, that idol has no power. It is not a god. But you might, in your mind, perceive certain things that this idol has, and therefore it influences you because you are imagining these things. Therefore, in one sense, it is real. It's having an effect on you. But the reality is they're not real, right? And this is what the Apostle Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I want you to notice, uh, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10, because it's helpful to see this in context, and we often don't, don't read this necessarily in context. 1 Corinthians 10, and of course the, the well-known passage of Scripture is verse 13. And of course the Apostle Paul has been talking about if you look at the title of this, this section, Warning Against Idolatry. I don't know if what it has in your Bible, but he goes through there and talks about it. But then he says in verse 13, No temptation has overtake you that is not common to man. Oh, so the context here is even idolatry is part of this temptation, this trial, this test. That is common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but will with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So, 
So these, these tests, these trials, are in the context of the discussion of idolatry. And then notice what he says in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee, what? From idolatry. <laughs> and then we also um, must recognize what the Apostle John says in 1 John 5.21, keep yourselves from idols. So friends, idolatry, an idol is anything, often a good thing, that we deify by making an ultimate thing in our lives. And I want to push that a little further with a, with a third question, and that's this. What does idolatry look like today? Because again, we, we kind of wrap our, our, our minds around idols in the Old Testament and kind of what we see kind of from a religious perspective. And the reality is, friends, that the idolatry we practice today is less about bowing down to and worshiping carved images and statues that represent spiritual gods, little g, Ours is a more subtle and sophisticated form of idolatry. And I want to seek to understand uh, that subtle understanding or subtle perspective of idolatry in, on two levels, a surface level and then a heart level. So on a surface le level, let's call these the fruit, the fruit, surface idols. These are the idols themselves, the objects, or the pursuits of our affection. They can be things like your job, a girlfriend, a boyfriend, cars, hobbies, um, cabins, children, um, some kind of, uh, you know, whether it be alcohol or, 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 or marijuana or something like that. Um, technology, ministry, politics, fashion, exercise, good grades, sports and sports teams, music, ideological causes, money, education. Right? These are all the arenas where these things, they're good things, but they can become ultimate things. And they're the, the things that we end up pouring our, our hearts into and when we should be taking responsibility of the things that God has called us to do. So what often happens with idols is they draw you away from the responsibilities that God has put on your shoulders to live out your life for his glory. Now, underneath the surface idols are the heart idols. These are, this is the root. So we can look at the fruit. I mean, you know, when someone is, you know, has one of these issues, let's, say, let's just say politics. Politics can be an idol. You're spending all your time flipping through Facebook and watching the news, and you're just so consumed with politics. It has become an idol for you. But politics is not necessarily the, the solution. You don't just say, well, stop looking at politics. There's something happening in your heart that this particular idol is satisfying for you. So the surface idols are simply the objects by which we flesh out the inner idols of the heart. Heart idols are things like acceptance, fear of what others might think, comfort, control, laziness, getting your way, fun, relaxation, peace, popularity, perfection, stability, certainty. See, these are all hard attitudes that shape how we think, how we behave, and the choices that we make. So just imagine if if you are a person who has a, a hobby working on old cars. But the question is now why? It's possible that you might want to not only work on the cars, but you're doing it because you want to be popular among a certain group. You want to be liked and accepted. You want to be seen as someone who's competent, who's skillful, who's in control. So when you take your car and, you, and people see it, you're getting all this kind of like pats on the back, well, how great you are because of what you did with the car. You're, in a sense, worshiping this idol, this need that you have in you to be satisfied. Now, on the other hand, working with cars and enjoying cars is not necessarily a bad thing. It's a good thing, but it's a good thing that can become an ultimate thing. And so you can just fill in the gap of the things that maybe you struggle in your life with and say, have these things become ultimate things? And friends, sometimes they can be your spouse or your children. They can become the ultimate things, and certainly you have a responsibility to them. But listen, the, the, your world should not depend on the little thing that Johnny or Sally does. And sometimes they're going to fail, and they're going to fail bad, and your idol is going to come crashing down. Okay? 
Let me give you another example from Scripture. Turn to Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 1. The reason I want to give this to you is I want, I want you to see what unfolds in this text. God is speaking about the, the ruthless nature of the Babylonians as they come in and they take um, their enemies captive. And he uses the image of fishing to describe their conquests and what they ultimately will worship. And it should teach us something. So this is Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 15 through 16. Here's what it says. He brings all of them up with a hook, talking about the Babylonian. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad, right? He's conquered the people. They've been gathered like in a net, like fish in a net, right? Therefore, he sacrifices to his what? To his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Now, do you see what these Babylonian warriors are worshiping? They're worshiping the means. In this case, this technology of nets and dragnets and they are attributing their blessing, their luxury, their success, their rich food to these nets and so offer sacrifices to them. You say, that's just really dumb. Obviously, the nets are the tools that they're using. Yes, this is the point. The point is this, in a material world, especially when we're all living in such luxury and all of us are, it is easy to bow down and worship the means of our blessing rather than the source of our blessing, which is God. For example, someone might say, it was my good education that landed me this job. Well, element of truth. Having a good education is a good thing. But where's God in this whole picture? Or someone might say, it was my strength in my leg that caused the goal that I scored, element of truth. But where's God in this equation? Or it was my charisma that caused this person to talk to me so I could share the gospel, element of truth. But where's God in this picture? See, these are all means, and they're good things, but they're all means. And behind the means is God, and he is saying, I will have no other gods before me. So your education is good. Your muscles are good. Your, your charisma is good. They're gifts that God has given you, but they are the means to your blessing, not the source of it. As Proverbs 3.6 says, in all your ways, acknowledge him, right? So what are idols? Simply put, we commit idolatry when we trust something or someone else alongside of God, or in the place of the only true God. You know, John Calvin famously said, our hearts are like idol factories. <laughs> we change good things into essential things, elevated things so quickly. So the first commandment is a call for people to forsake idolatry. And in simple terms, Jesus says this, you cannot serve God and money. He's saying, you can't serve God and this thing that you are worshiping also. So, a call to forsake idolatry. Secondly, what we see here is a call to complete loyalty. You shall have no other gods before me, or maybe more specifically, you shall have me. The Lord is demanding absolute, unshared loyalty. Now, those who are atheists or those who simply oppose Christianity look at the first commandment and think to themselves, God is so arrogant. He's so full of himself. He's so demanding of self-worship. How could anyone worship such a tyrant? But is that true? Is that even the issue in the context of what's going on as God is giving out these Ten Commandments? Let me... I invite you now to turn to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. Now, you know what it says there, I'm sure. In the beginning, God. He's the creator. 
He spoke the world into existence. There were no other gods present at creation. Baal wasn't there. Dagon wasn't there. Moloch wasn't there. God, the God of Israel, he was there. Now we get the context of what God is saying here as he begins to speak his 10 words, these 10 commandments. The people are at the foot of the mountain and they're trembling in the presence of God. They've they've, uh, seen the presence of God, not necessarily him personally because no man can see God and live, but the, the, the thunder and the lightning and the smoke and the fire that was all there. They knew that God had come. And at the beginning of the chapter, we find God revealing three things about himself. First of all, he exists. I am, right? He is the self-existent one. He speaks. He comes saying something, and he acts. And he's, he's revealing what he has already done for the people, his covenant people. And he's saying to his people, look, it wasn't the Egyptian god Ra that delivered you from Egypt. It was me. It wasn't Circuit or Hika or Geb. It wasn't Hapi or Ishtar or Isis. It wasn't Nut or Set or Osiris. No, they don't even exist. I demonstrated their emptiness. I demonstrated their impotence. It was I, the Lord, who brought you up out of Egypt. So what is God doing? He's reminding them of who is real and what is not and he's demanding loyalty, complete and absolute loyalty. Now, first here under this heading, I want to say this, that loyalty demands absolute exclusivity. That's what he's calling for here. God is an exclusive God. This is an attribute of his. He is unique. He is holy. He is exclusive. He will not share his glory with another. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, the idea of have is language that comes from a wedding ceremony, right? You often hear this in the context of a wedding uh, ceremony. I take you to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for richer, for worse, uh, and so on, right? The idea of have here is a word that means possession. It's actually a covenant word. There is a relationship already established. It's a covenant relationship here. So if forsaking idolatry is the negative side of the first commandment, then complete and absolute loyalty is the positive side of the first commandment. Now, the Bible does speak of the many gods of the various nations around, as if if they, they are there and they exist. But the emphasis as even those are mentioned, is that there really is only one God and that these gods of other nations are actually not gods at all. Now Moses is speaking to Israel at the end of their wilderness wandering in Deuteronomy chapter 4. I'm going to ask you to turn there here in just a minute. This is taking place as they are about to enter into the promised land. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 32. And here's what God is saying through Moses. It's a really powerful section. He says, For ask now of the days that are past, which are before you since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this, he's talking about God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt, see if anything as this has ever happened or ever was heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out in the midst of the fire? As you've heard, and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that, here's the point, that you might know that the Lord is God, there is none other beside him. I mean, Moses is getting to the heart here. He's saying Yahweh is not just Israel's God. He is the only God. That theme is repeated for us in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 44, verse 6. 
Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Four titles there for the same person. I am the first, and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. In other words, other competing gods do not exist. He's the first, and he's the last. I don't know if you guys follow mixed martial arts or UFC, but yesterday there was a big fight that took place, and the winner, a guy by the name of Khabib, uh, ended up winning the, 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 the bout, and he ended up retiring with a record of 29 wins, zero losses. Yeah, you don't fight again with that kind of record, right? You keep that record, and that's what he did. But here's the difference. He may be the reigning champion. He may have a bunch of belts. But he always had competition. As good as he was, he always had competition. God never, ever, ever has competition. Man creates in his mind an image of a God and thinks that this then is in competition with God when it's not There is only one God, and he alone is God. He is exclusive. Still, we are so easily drawn away, aren't we? It isn't that, well, I would say, isn't this your experience? We're so quickly changed uh, in our loyalties from one place to another. We so quickly give up believing what the Lord says because we think there must be a better way. No, this is too hard. I can't do this, Lord. I know you're calling me to do these things, but there's got to be a better way. So now you're looking for another solution apart from God rather than trusting him and rather than realizing that what he is saying actually is taking you down the path of freedom. And so we start to drift away. We start to look for what seems to, to us to be better answers or better solutions or better feelings. And we look around at people and we see them having fun and we see them having their act together and they seem to have the answer. And modern society sounds so convincing, claiming that it knows what is best. And it says that your God is old-fashioned. Your God is out of date. And so your heart doubts and it wonders and seeks to find some substance in a perceived God, a God that doesn't exist except in the minds of those who want to believe it. But the God of the Bible stands out, friends. He demands exclusivity. He will not share his glory with another. He is God, and he is God alone. So we note here, first of all, then, loyalty demands absolute exclusivity. But secondly, loyalty demands wholehearted love. That is what we find taught in the Shema. So we're, this is all in the books of Moses. These are all things that are taking, around, taking place in similar contexts here. And this is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Here's what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? One. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And what we need to keep unseeing here in the Old Testament is that God's people are not simply moved to keep the moral law because of fear, which is how society views it, but they are to keep the moral law because they love the Lord their God who has done so much for them. But sadly, way too many people, even in the church, embrace and are entrenched in an attitude that sees the law as a list of rules and regulations which when violated, stir up God's wrath. And so they think that those who abide by them are somehow under the weight of an oppressive God, as if God is demanding Israel to follow a liquid diet the rest of their lives, right? You know what it's like when someone, the doctor says, you have to be on a liquid diet, you're like, oh, I just want some beef. Give me some beef, will you? All right? No, a liquid diet. No, see, it's just God is, is just removing things because he just wants to rain in our parade. No, not at all. God wants us to be free. He wants us to enjoy life. God is calling us to love him as well as to love others. That is not di- divine oppression. That is divine freedom. But they love the law because they know that true freedom is theirs in embracing and living their lives according to that law. 
That's why the psalmist says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. That's Psalm 119.97. And as we've already seen, when Jesus confronted the religious leaders and they asked the question trying to trick him, which is the greatest commandment in the law, he responds by saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. So this wholehearted heart, soul, and mind, that's what that's talking about there, with everything that you have, this wholehearted devotion and love to the only one who has delivered you from your slavery and given you freedom, this is why, this is what you're doing when you're loving God wholeheartedly. There's, there's not much room when you do that. There's not much room for any other God once you have loved the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. But the truth is, we're surrounded by other gods with a little g. And they will seek to capture our hearts and our minds and the central places of our passions. They will seek to lure us away from the one who has been and is our savior and sustainer, who is committed to bringing what he has started in you to completion. So friends, we've seen a call to forsake idolatry, a call to complete loyalty. And that leads us now to what I'm calling a call to gospel identity. No other gods before me. Now, you have to follow the logic of where I'm going here. I want to begin by saying this, that Jesus is God. The question we must ask as we look to connect our text with the New Testament is this, is Jesus one of the other gods before God? Is Jesus competing with the God of the Old Testament? Of course, the answer is a resounding no. Why? Because God is, among many other things, plurality. This begins in Genesis chapter 1, where we read in verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, right? One God, three persons. One God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We sang today, holy, holy, holy. The holy, holy, holy isn't talking about each of the gods. It's actually a, 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 a literature um, uh, device, literary device in Hebrew to say holy, holy. You can't get any holier than that. But there is a God who now is in three persons. Blessed Trinity, we sang, right? Now, friends, that is who God is in the Old Testament. And that is, friends, who God is in the New Testament. And none of the New Testament writers ever thought that there was a problem with Jesus being another God, might want to say, taking up residence and stealing God's glory. Turn to the Gospel of Mark. There's a number of things I want to show you in the Gospel of Mark that I think help us see this as being true. And we're going to walk through a few places in Mark's Gospel, so I would encourage you to, to follow along. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, oh, sorry, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's important. It's identifying the relationship here between Jesus Christ and the Son of God. Mark 1:14. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. Is that what it says? No, the gospel of God. <laughs> this wasn't his own gospel. This was the gospel that was always there. Mark chapter 1, verse 9. This is Jesus being baptized by John. This is what you read. Notice the Trinity here. When he came up out of the water, that's Jesus, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, descending on him like a dove. And a voice, that's the Father, came from heaven you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Mark 1 and verse 24. Here we have the unclean spirit or the demon speaking to Jesus. He says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Mark chapter 14, so you're going to flip a few pages there. Jesus stands before the Jewish council as he is being grilled. And, he, and they ask, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He says, I am. That's emphatic. And Mark chapter 15, verse 39, the centurion watching Jesus die on the cross says, truly this man 
was the Son of God. You see how the writer here, Mark in particular, is, is, is connecting the dots between the God of the Old Testament and Jesus, who is the Son of God, that they are one, all right? And then you can go to the Gospel of John. Don't have to turn there necessarily, but if you were to turn there, what you'd find is John presenting Jesus as the great I am. He's clearly linking and identifying Jesus to the fact that the God of the Old Testament is actually Jesus himself. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheepfold. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And what's it, what's it say next? No one comes to the Father except through me. So God was saying in the Old Testament, you shall have no other gods beside me. Jesus here is saying, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is, is claiming exclusivity with the Father and identifying that they are one. Now, I'm saying that for a reason. The reason I'm saying that is because we then are connected to the God of the Old Testament through Jesus. And the language of the New Testament describes that relationship in our in, in, in the language of our relationship with Jesus. So Jesus is God, but secondly here, we are identified with Christ. Now here in our text in Exodus chapter 20, on top of the mountain, God comes near. Ultimately, there will be a tabernacle that he'll describe, but he's tabernacled on the mountain, and he reveals himself. He displays his power, and he speaks in the New Testament God comes down to dwell with us in the person of Jesus Christ. He reveals himself. He displays his power. He identifies with humanity, and he speaks. And ultimately, he dies as a saving sacrifice. Therefore, friends, we're saved through him, but we're called to live our lives in him. That's the language that Paul uses in, in particular, in the book of Ephesians, we are identified in Christ. See, we are the family of God. We are related together. We're adopted as sons. We are the body of Christ. Each one of us is a contributing, necessary member of that body. We are the bride of Christ. We are the object of his love and his sanctification. Now, these images all help us see that our identity and connectivity to Christ is, is real. And this Christ is God. So what this means, friends, is we have a new identity. We are called Christians. That's our identity. We're also to wear new uniforms. Now, people don't see it, but they are the righteous clothes of Christ. That's what we're clothed in. And we have a new master, Christ, who guides us in all truth. And we have a new mindset, the mind of Christ, that changes our worldview. Therefore, we're to worship God with our lives. Now, I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And as we do so, I want us to think of this section in light of the first commandment. And uh, you'll see how that context helps Romans 12, 1 and 2 shine brighter still. You probably know it by memory. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. What is the mercy of God? What has he been describing through the first part of the book of Romans? He's been talking about sin and, and salvation and sanctification, all, all the wonderful things that God does for us in his deliverance of us as his people. So these are the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual form of worship. Do not 
be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So what do we see here? We see deliverance, the mercies of God. We see forsaking idolatry. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be pressed into the world's mold. Don't let the world force you to embrace and bow down to their ideologies or its ideology. We see here living for him. This is your spiritual worship, changing your worldview, being transformed by the renewing of your minds. This is what, what happened to Israel. They have been delivered. Now they're undergoing some tests, and as they are standing there at the foot of the mountain, what is God saying? Look, you've had some tests, but let me tell you something. You still have some gods, and you need to get those gods away because I will not tolerate them being present with. There'll be no other gods before me. But he goes on, and part of the reason he's giving the commandments here is so that we will know how to live, how we are to worship. It's all right there in these two verses. It's all connected. So friends, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, but live your lives as living sacrifices, as a form of spiritual worship to the one true God. This is your gospel identity. You need to remember whose team you're on. You need to remember your family name. You know what it's like when our kids, our kids went to Redwood Christian School, and I know when the coach gathered together, he would look at them and say, look, you're all representing Redwood Christian School. But you know what we did before our son left? You're representing the Phillips family before you're representing Redwood Christian School. Right? We belong to Christ. That is our family name. We are Christians. You need to remember that we are members of the body of Christ. Now, I'm sure you've heard the following story many times. It's the story of the blind man and the elephant, right? And I know a lot of people use it to describe different things. Here, here's the story. The king uh, gets six men from his court, and he blindfolds them all, and he brings now into their presence a creature they've never seen before. It happens to be an elephant. And he asks them to describe to him what they're touching. And here are their responses. One of them touches the elephant, um, its side, and he is convinced that he's touching a wall. It's what it feels like. Another touches the tusk, and he's convinced that he's, he, he's um, touching a spear. The third man touches the trunk, and he, he's convinced that it's a snake. One of them touches the knee of the elephant, and he thinks it's a tree. Another touches its ear and thinks it's a fan. And the sixth one touches its tail and is convinced that he's holding a rope. And that illustration is often used to describe this is how people understand God. There can be Christians who you know, grabbing a hold of a tail. There can be Buddhists that are touching a leg. And there's other people that are touching the side of the elephant. Uh, but, but none of them is right. They can only grope in their blindness to imagine what they're touching. And friends, this is what religions of the world are like. They're groping in their blindness, imagining what they think is true when it is not. Now, some would say, look, how can you say that your Christianity is right? How can you be so sure that you are not groping in blindness like the rest of us? How can you be sure that your God is the only God? Well, the answer, my friends, is obvious. We will be groping in our blindness just like those six men unless something very important takes place. And what is that? It's that the elephant speaks. And the elephant says, no, I'm not a wall. I'm not a spear or a snake. I'm not a tree or a fan or a rope, let me tell you what I am. I'm an elephant. <coughs> and friends, that is exactly what God does, isn't it? Man might be groping in the darkness trying to figure out if God exists, and if God exists, what God is like, and then God speaks. And he says, hey, let me tell you who I am, what I am like. Let me show you what I have done and my love for my chosen people. And we're reminded that the theme of Exodus is for God to be known. He wants Egypt 
to know who is God. He wants the surrounding nations to know who he is. He wants Israel ultimately to know who he is, and he wants the future generations. So that means us as Christians to know who he is, what he is like, what he expects, how or what he knows is good for them. Let me remind you of Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This, he's saying, is who I am, and I will have no other gods before me. Friends, we know God, not because we're groping for him in blindness, but because God has spoken. And what God is doing right now with these Ten Commandments is he is speaking. He's revealing things about himself. He is an exclusive God. And when Jesus comes, he comes as the Son of God. They are one. He is, he is the God in the flesh. He comes now to the earth, and he goes to a cross. He dies for our sin. And when we put our faith and trust in him, and we begin to live for him, we're still called to Loving him with exclusivity. Jesus does not want to be partnered with any other God. He is God, and he deserves our full and complete worship. John Calvin, in his commentary, argues that we owe God four things adoration, trust, invocation, and thanksgiving. And I would like just to close this morning by saying, you know, those are four words that can help us. Ask some diagnostic questions about, or maybe diagnostic questions that will reveal for us maybe where some of our idolatry lies. We'll take each of those words separately here. Adoration. Adoration. What or whom do you praise? I mean, what's on your lips? What are you rejoicing over? What excites you? What or whom do you praise? The second word is trust. What or whom do you count on? What is it you're relying on? What is it you're leaning on? What or whom do you trust? The third one is invocation. What or whom do you turn to for help? You know, to whom are you praying? What are you turning to, thinking that it might be the answer to what you need? Was it Psalm 121 says, um, I will look, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? The, 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 the psalmist is looking up to the hills. He doesn't see any help. He's hoping that maybe an army will come over the hills. But he's quickly reminded that an army is not what he needs. And he says, my help comes from the Lord. <laughs> and finally, thanksgiving. What or whom do you thank? When you close your eyes and put your hands together, are you truly going to God and saying, God, thank you for the blessings, for the trials, for the struggles? Or are you thanking something else or someone else? Maybe you're even fighting against it. Friends, an idol is anything, often a good thing, that we deify by making it an ultimate thing in our lives. And what this text is screaming at us about, we who are Christians today, having the New Testament now is this, that Jesus should be our ultimate thing. <laughs> He is the one that deserves our adoration, our trust. He's the one to whom we come with when we have prayers. He is the one we thank. Friends, we all have idols. And I want to encourage each of you to do some soul searching this week and maybe identify what your idol idols are. Maybe one of the ways that you can answer that question is by asking someone who knows you really well what your idols are. They might be able to tell you a little better than you. 
Of course, I'm not going to do that when I go home. (laughs) But not really. But identify your idols. Maybe you already know what they are. But remember, God says, look, I'll, I'll not share my glory with any other God with a little g. I want your worship exclusively. That should be true of us individually as well as corporately. As a church, we should be worshiping him and him alone. Lord, we thank you for your kindness this morning. Thank you, Lord, for a cooler day, a little bit more shade, a nice breeze. These are all blessings, Lord. These are all wonderful things. But Lord, what's more important is the fact that you're feeding us through your word. And Lord, your word is relevant. As as we even go into the next couple of weeks and and we're facing a a national um, election and, and our emotions and our spirits and our passions, Lord, can be can be going high. Maybe they're not expressed, but we're feeling them and we're listening to the news and the things that are being said and we can get angry. We can get, you know, panic. We can, all these things, Lord, are happening within us. Lord, help us fight and fight and fight with those things that seem to be ruling our heart and to be reminded that you are firmly seated on your throne and you are the one that wants our attention. You want us to look to you. You want us to praise you for who you are. You want us, Lord, to to bring our requests before you. You want us to lean into you. And, Lord, you want us to come to you expressing our thankfulness for the way in which you serve us as God. We are undeserving of your kindness. We're undeserving of your faithfulness. We're undeserving of your hesed, your, your consistent love, your tender mercy, your loving kindness, Lord. We are so undeserving of that. And yet, Lord, you are committed to us. May we express our faithfulness to you in an exclusivity that forsakes idols, strives after our identity with Christ. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.